For more media content from Grace Community Church in San Antonio, Texas, go to gccsatx.com. ...about the Trinity and the Father and the Son. and Is it possible to see the Father? One thing we know is right at this moment, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of His Father. The Scripture says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, He's there. But the interesting thing about the stoning of Stephen and that chapter in the book of Acts where he looked up and it says he saw Christ at the right hand of His Father Did He see the Father? Did He see the Son? Exactly what He saw, I don't know that any of us in this room can identify with, but what we know is this. Stephen was here on this earth when he was being stoned. And there is just a thin veil that stands between us and glory. That veil was taken back and he was able to see into it. It's there. Well, we've, got to, we've got to come away, folks. We've got to realize there is just this very light veneer that, that shields us right now. There's a curtain that's drawn over it. But that very glory that he saw, if but a moment that, that curtain was peeled back, He could behold it. And it's there. I mean, if we could but for a second peer into the spiritual realm, the things that are happening around us, the things that are real. Angels aren't fiction. That's not just mythology. They're real. Demons are real. Angels are real. The presence of God is real. The movements of the Spirit are real. The demons seeking like birds to pick up what's spoken today is real. There are spiritual battles. It's all real. And we come right to this hour. We're just trying to, we're trying to live in this life and this world and keep our perspective on things above. On things that are real. Like, like C.S. Lewis said, this is just the shadow land. You look at, you look and you say, well, this, this is what I see. This is what I feel. But this isn't the greatest reality. We're moving towards other things. Get your focus off this. We're headed into a path. Sometimes when I'm studying, sometimes I just, Lord, am I I even going in the direction You want me to go? And you know what? I heard Laura's testimony. You that went to public school, you could imagine her standing at her locker. I was imagining looking down that hallway. And there was a surrender of all. And then we sing that song. I'm thinking, this is exactly what my message is today. I I was telling Martha how often, and Richard, I believe, how often the songs... God just coordinates songs so that they go with the message. Songs that I thought of, actually, as I was preparing, oftentimes we end up singing. Things come together to just confirm. And I really believe, I believe in the depths of my heart, we are where God would have us to be as a church. And I... I have an expectation of change in our lives. We are entering today into the 12th chapter of Romans. I'd have you to turn there with me. I am calling you, brothers and sisters, to live a life that is worthy 
of those things and that realm and that one who sits on that throne. I'm calling you to a way of life that is befitting of a people that aren't locked into this visible world. I'm calling you to a life that should be lived by those that are headed into eternity, that are heaven bound, that are the children of God. No, we have not arrived. Oh, folks. If you will come with me on this journey through the next weeks and the next months through Romans 12 and beyond to 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, you see what's happening is the book of Romans is at the fulcrum. Paul has established 11 chapters of some of the most glorious doctrine. Don't be afraid of that word. Doctrine simply means teaching. He has been teaching us some, there is nothing that you can come to understand in this world that will take you above and beyond what those first 11 chapters hold. The truth there, the gospel that is there, the Christ, the salvation that's set forth. It doesn't get any greater than that. And what happens? It says we enter into the twelfth chapter. Put your eyes there. I appeal to you, therefore. I appeal to you. Paul comes to us and he says, I appeal to you, brethren. But that word, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore. You see what's happening? He takes 11 chapters of doctrine. Oh, that doesn't mean once in a while he doesn't break out and give us something that's really practical. Paul's pastoral, and sometimes he just can't hold back. But for the most part, it's teaching, it's doctrine, it's promise, it's truth. One after another after another that he gives us, and he basically sums all this up, all these 11 chapters, by saying this. The mercies of God. He looks at those 11 chapters and he says what they are, they're the mercies of God. And he says, therefore, brethren, I appeal to you, therefore, based on these mercies of God, all that you've seen there, I'm appealing to you to live a life that is worthy of that. I'm appealing to you to live in light of such truths. What Paul does not do It's just say, live the Christian life. Just do it. It's never that. There is a foundation for the life that He's calling us to. And it's a foundation of doctrine. You will not live right if you do not think right, if you don't know that one of the reasons to meditate on the Word of God like we found in the the Sunday school today is so that you might live right. You can't live right if you don't know right. You can't live right if you don't know God. You can't live right if you don't know the Gospel. If you don't know the truths that undergird. The Christian life isn't lived in a vacuum. It's lived on a foundation. A rock-solid foundation of truth. Now we can go back and we can review some of that and no doubt we will. Because I am going to work off that therefore in the weeks and months ahead. Because they connect You've got to keep pulling those truths of chapters 1 through 11 back in to undergird the life that he's calling us to. That's what therefore means. You know, one of the things that you simply can't do if you don't meditate on the word like Craig talked about is you'll never notice words like therefore. I mean, if you're in the speed read mode, you you go right across that. You know and yet, isn't that, that's, that's fundamental. A word like that means everything. In the Word of God, words aren't just scattered here and there for no avail. Not just randomly. Brothers and sisters, listen, as we start the 12th chapter of Romans, Paul has an image in mind. It's what we sang about. 
I surrender all. It's the image of sacrifice. The first of all the sacrifices given to Israel. If you go back, Leviticus is the book that talks about the various sacrifices that were given to God's covenant people. And when you go back there in Leviticus chapter 1, right from the beginning, the very first sacrifice is the burnt sacrifice. Now let me tell you about this. A man would go to his herd and he would get a bull. It had to be a male. It had to be blameless. Or he would go to his flock and he would get a goat or a lamb. They had to be spotless and male. And he would bring them. And he had to go to the tent of meeting. And you remember, the tent of meeting was set up in the middle of the tribes. And the man, you can imagine him, he'd likely have a rope around the neck of the animal. Some way the animal would be harnessed or leashed. And he would walk that animal to the tent of meeting. And that man himself had to kill his own animal. He laid his hand on the head of that animal. And then he would take the knife and he would slice the throat. We don't understand that today. That idea of sacrifice escapes us. Because how many of you have actually taken an animal and with a knife you've slit its neck? How many of you have done that? I mean, a big animal. Not just if, you know, you stepped on a... But something the size of a cow, something the size of a lamb, you actually take the knife and as it's bleeding, you slice the neck. And then the, the priest would take of that blood and they would throw it against the sides of the altar. And here's the thing with the burnt offering. Every bit of it went on the altar. All of it. Now, with some of the other offerings, some of it would be spared. Oh, it's still holy. And it would be put to holy use. But with the burnt offering, all of it. The animal, after its throat was cut and the blood was put on the altar, the animal would be cut into pieces. Parts of it would be washed. But every single piece went on the altar and was consumed in the fire. What Paul has in mind, he's got this imagery in his mind as he tells the Christians, Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. All of it. You know what? When, when the burnt sacrifice was taken there, you didn't all of a sudden decide, well, you know what? I think I want a handful of the wool to take home and make some clothing into. The priests didn't all of a sudden decide, well, you know what? I think I'm going to take a leg and, and take it home to my family tonight and have, have dinner with this. All of it was given for one purpose. It was presented to God entirely to be consumed. Every piece, every, all of it, every bit of that thing was put there. It was consumed in its entirety. Entirely offered to Him. You didn't go sell part of it at the market. You didn't go make a coat out of the hide. All of it went to the altar. All of it. Every bit of it. Nothing spared. And this is what God is calling us to do. We're not dead like it is. We're living. We're living sacrifices. But the imagery is all of it on the altar of God. Nothing spared. Nothing held back. All surrendered. The sacrifice is totally given to God to be consumed by Him. This is the imagery. It's an imagery of sacrifice. God isn't looking for your goat or for your lamb. It's you He wants on that altar. All of you. These next five chapters call us to a simply radical life. A life you won't live unless you're determined to give it all to the Lord. All of it. All of it. Your mouth. Your mind. Your sexual organs. Your hands. Your ears. Your eyes. 
Everything. Nothing held back. All of it. All of it on the altar. Totally consumed. Totally engulfed. Nothing spared. All for God. Not, look, it's not a little bit to God on Sundays and Wednesdays. He wants it all. All the time. It's, it's an infinitive. He's appealing to us to present. I mean, you, you present. It's a constant presentation of yourself over and over and over again. Totally to God. It's not you wake up in the morning and you would make divisions in your life. It's not like you've got the secular and you've got the holy. What God is calling you to do is give Him your all. Whether you're in the workplace, whether you're in the school, whether you're in the church, no matter where. All on the altar. All for Him. All to be lived for Him. Entirely. That's what we have. Work doesn't own part of me. School doesn't own me. My family doesn't own me. The pursuit of money doesn't own me. Paul appeals for all of it. A living sacrifice. Total resignation. The total surrendering of all. Here we are. Just Let's just glance through just a second. Chapter 12. Now listen, don't be casual here. Really think about what these mean. I mean, really think, if I give 100% of myself to accomplishing these things, what that will look like in my life. Verse 3, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Can you imagine? Don't just run right over that. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Can you imagine a church where everybody has an accurate view of themselves and their gifts and their graces and their existing defects and their sin where people aren't overestimating themselves, where they're not blind to themselves. Oh, it's so natural to see the defect in others and to excuse it in ourselves. But to really be in a church, it's all on the altar. You move forward a little bit. Verse 9, let love be genuine. No hypocrisy. No Pharisees. It's genuine. To the heart, it's genuine. Verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Where we, if there's going to be a competition, if there's going to be a contest, it's not going to be, see how much I can exalt myself, but I'm going to seek to outdo everybody else in showing them honor. Verse 12, oh, how hard it is to be patient in tribulation. If we had a church where when people suffer, they don't cry, they don't moan, they don't complain, they don't have a pity party. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. We're free with our money. Not tight-fisted. Verse 14, this is hard. Bless those who persecute you. So often when people are done wrong by somebody, they don't bless those people. They're trying to find the quickest person they can get an ear from to go cry on their shoulder about how so-and-so did them wrong. Verse 15, weep with those who weep. Bearing others' burdens. Back up a little bit with a genuine love. Verse 16, it says right before this, not being haughty, but associating with the lowly. Really associating with the lowly. We're on the east side. It's so evident when we don't associate. Oh, there's, it's not enough, folks, associating with the lowly doesn't mean a homeless person comes in and you push a plate over to them. Associating with the lonely is investing your life in those people. 
Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 19, never avenge yourselves. Verse 20, feed your enemies. I mean, you not only don't repay evil for evil, you repay good for evil. You feed brethren. This is what we're going to be going through in chapter 12 over the next weeks and months. You simply can't live this sort of extreme life unless it's all on the altar. Living sacrifice. We're not there. You and I have not gotten to where we need to be. Every one of us are in a place where we need to grow. Every child of God in this place, we need to give ourselves to it. We need to all be striving. We need to be all increasing. Brethren, listen to me. I need a commitment from you. But you are not going to let this go by without being changed. You are going to make a commitment right now. You are going to examine yourself in light of being a perpetual living sacrifice where it's all on that altar. You're surrendering all of it to give yourselves to living a life like this. And we are going to look at these things in detail. But I need commitment from you. I need you right in there, right in here to say, that's it. I am going to. I believe that God is bringing this to us as a church for a purpose. I believe He intends to grow us. Listen, it is never enough for a church to simply grow numerically. We've got to grow in Christ-likeness. We've got to be making progress towards more and more becoming those who put it all up there on that altar to be consumed by the very fires of God. We need to grow. We need to excel. We need to pray for one another. Pray for yourselves and pray for one another that we would all grow. May God give us a church full of living sacrifices placed on this altar. Nothing sparing. Nothing kept back. All of us on that altar. What we're going to encounter in Romans 12 is a life that is absolutely unlike anything that the world has to offer. It's radical. It's extreme. It's the image of Christ. I'll tell you this right up front. Only those who are saved by the grace of God, only those who have called upon the Lord Jesus Christ, only those who have been born again can live this life. You cannot go here. This is not the life that you can live in your own natural strength. This is not the life that this world offers us. This is not the life that Islam offers us. Islam says to kill the infidels. This is not that life. This is a life of genuine love. This is a life that goes to the root. It goes to the heart of the matter. Living sacrifice, brethren. Living sacrifice. But here's the thing. As we start out, my objective today is this. I want you to see right up front that not only is this something that we are being given appeal to live, this is not only something that is a good idea to live, this is a way of life that you must live if you are a child of God. I want to show you the certainties of God's Word that undergird this. If Paul can start out by saying, I appeal to you, therefore... And he's appealing to the past promises and the past truths that are given. Then I want to go back there and I want to collect one or two of those truths to undergird this. Because right from the beginning, what I want you guys to be absolutely convinced of is that you are not Christian. Hear me. You are not some defeated wretch of a man or a woman who constantly crawls around in the muck and the filth of his sin with the drippings of it all going down your face and you're just helpless and can't do anything. That is not the life of a Christian. That is not what Scripture describes. You are being called to something that Scripture says you can do and in fact you must do. This is imperative. Jesus Christ has set those He saves free 
So live like free men. That's what I'm calling you to. You're no longer a slave. You need to rise up and walk. No, even more, you need to rise up and run. You are not slaves. You can do this. I don't want anybody saying, I can't do this. It's too hard. I don't want you caving in here. I don't want you defeated right from the start. None of this wretched man stuff. No, sir. Paul is appealing to you to live a life that you can live. That you must live. That you indeed will live if you are a true child of God. If you're not saved, you can't come on this holy ground. You've got to go to Christ. There's got to be a full surrender. There's got to be a calling upon the risen Lord Jesus Christ. There must be that. Now here's what I want you to do. Turn to Romans 6.22. Brothers and sisters, again and again and again and again, I am reminded of and come back to the truth of Romans 6.22. This truth literally undergirds Romans 12.1. In Romans 6.22, we find the certainty behind a life that is a living sacrifice. The life of Romans 12 is not just a nice option. Jesus' blood was not shed to make a bunch of carnal Christians. It was not. Paul appeals us to be and do what God says we will be and what we will do. Look here. Romans 6.22 You have been set free from sin. You have been. It's not you might have been. Not occasionally you are. Not just on the good days you are. It says you have been. That's number one. You see what... What Romans 6.22 is, is really a string of about four pearls. That's the first one. The second one, you have become slaves of God. Again, it's not optional. This is what you have become. Then three, the fruit you get... The fruit that flows forth from being free from sin and a slave to God, the fruit you get, it leads to sanctification. Now listen, sanctification. We need to understand that term. So often, when that term comes up, people just simply seem to think righteousness. Now, obviously it's part of it, but that doesn't get to the fullest depth and to the fullest meaning of it. When you hear sanctification or holiness, some of your Bibles may say these fruits that are unto holiness. Holiness is separation. Holiness is consecration. Holiness is being set apart to be dedicated to God. Now you answer me this. When you take a living sacrifice and put it on the altar of God, entirely surrendered all of it to Him, what is that? That's holiness! That's sanctification. That's exactly what we're talking about. That's the third pearl here. You've got these fruits and they're leading to this sanctification. And then, fourth, it's end. The end of this consecration. The end of this living sacrifice. The end of being separated entirely to God's use is what? Eternal life. You see, this is what I want you to see. I want you to feel. I want you to really grasp. I want it to affect you. If you're here visiting today and you've never heard this, then hear. There is only one life. Only one. And it's not the Muslim life. There's only one life that leads to eternal life. Just one. And I'll tell you this. It's the Christian life. That's it! 
That's the only life that leads to eternal life. It's the Christian life. And the Christian life is the life described here in verse 22 of Romans 6. There is an inescapable connection between eternal life and a life that gives evidence that it is no longer mastered by sin, but rather mastered by God. And the fruit of just such a life leads you deeper and deeper and deeper into a sanctified life. Deeper and deeper and deeper into holiness. Further and further into having the very image of God burned into your soul where you are consumed by the very fire of total resignation to God. This is exactly what it is to be a living sacrifice. Set apart for God. That's what holiness is. That's what the process of sanctification is all about. And the end of that is what? Eternal life. And there's no other way there. Romans 6.22 is certain. That's the path to it. Now, I can imagine someone here Wondering about that statement. You have been set free from sin. Now look. There's no question. We've been set free from the penalty of sin. There is therefore no condemnation. Folks, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. You are free from the penalties. I am not going to hell. I deserve it. A thousand times over I deserve it. But I'm not going there. Because all my wrath fell on that sacred head. He had to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't have to go that path. But being free from sin goes further than that. You want to see? You want God to show you what His definition is of free from sin? Okay, look right back up, probably in the same column, to Romans 6.17. But thanks be to God that you who were once... Now notice that. Were once. In other words, you used to be something. What was it? You used to be slaves of sin. But what? You're not anymore. You used to be slaves of sin, but now you're not. Now you, now watch these two words, have become. You were one thing, now you've become something else. What is it you've become? Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were once committed. Now folks, there's only one standard of teaching for the Christian. What is that? What's our standard? It's the Word of God. There is none other. That's our standard. And what Paul is saying of the Roman Christians is he's thanking God. Because I'll tell you this, it wasn't something they did in their own power. God did it. You thank God for something that He did, right? This is what happened. They became obedient from the heart. At one time, they were slaves of sin. Now, the opposite of slave is what? Free. The opposite of a slave to sin is free from sin. The whole point here is, folks, that... Freedom from sin equates to obedience from the heart to the standard of truth. That's what it's all about. Okay? Back to Romans 6.22. Let's take that understanding back down with us. When Paul says you've been set free from sin, he means you who were once slaves to sin, you're now free from it. You're free from it. Your freedom from it, I should say, is evident. By your obedience from the heart. Now, listen, folks. This is not foreign to the Scriptures. Not at all. If you say that you know Him and you're not doing His commandments, you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. If, if Jesus Christ Himself said, many are going to say to Me in that day, Lord, Lord. But He says, it's not everybody that says to Me, Lord, Lord, that's going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says it's those who do the will of the Father. Doing the will of the Father, keeping the commandments of God... Folks, we see this all over Scripture as a proof that people are genuinely born again. This is not foreign to other places. Obedience. That's behind it. So, what am I saying here? What I'm saying is this. Being free from sin isn't just being free from the penalty of it. It's being freed from the power of it. The mastery of it. 
the dominion of it. And isn't that, in fact, what Romans 6.14 says? Sin will not have dominion. That's the whole idea. You become obedient from the heart. It is no longer going to dominate you. So, back to Romans 6.22. You've been set free from sin. You become obedient from the heart. Here in 6.22, he says this, have become. Now notice those words, because they were used in verse 17 as well. There, you have become obedient from the heart. Here, you have become slaves of God. You see, to be a true Christian is to, believe, is to become something that you were not before. It's to become something radically different. As we, are, as we heard in the testimony, listen folks, you don't walk down an aisle and get this. You don't walk down an aisle and become obedient from the heart to the standard of truth. You don't say the sinner's prayer and simply end up being a slave to God. We're talking radical, radical transformation over against what's said there in Romans 7.5. Look there. Romans 7.5. This is the life over against which we set this. Radical transformation. What does Romans 7.5 say? You see what it says? Basically, Romans 7.5. You were. You see the, the, the word were. He's speaking about how you were as a Christian in the past. You're not like that anymore. Because you have become slaves of God. You have become obedient from the heart. But you were when you were in the flesh. We're not living in the flesh. If you're in the flesh, Romans 8 is very clear about what you are. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. What we have here is when you live in the flesh, the fruit, you see the fruit at the end? The fruit leads to death. What's the fruit? You live in the flesh, you're confronted by law, and what does law do when it meets flesh? It, it arouses more sin. That's what it does. But that is not the life. That's how you were. Now you have become slaves of God. You become obedient from the heart. In fact, Paul says in Romans 6, what, like 18, that you're slaves of righteousness. Being a slave of God and a slave of righteousness are exactly the same thing. And you bear this fruit. Can I tell you what the fruit is? Folks, the fruit tree is in Romans 12. You go down through those, what, 21 verses or so, and you can just pick fruit there all day long. That is the fruit that ends up leading to this sanctification that is then unto eternal, and its end is eternal life. That's the fruit. That's the connection. And see, what we're being told here, this is what I want you to grasp. What we're being told here in Romans 6 is that if you would have eternal life, this is what you have become. You are free from sin. You are a slave to God. You see the, you see the words fruit? It says the fruit you get. That's not, that's not optional. You get it. You see, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were created and put in Christ for that very reason. Christian, every true child of God, you have been predestinated to be conformed to the very image of Christ. You have been predestinated to be spotless and blameless before Him. You have been predestinated to be these living sacrifices. You have been predestinated to carry out works, fruit. You have been predestinated to do the things that are in Romans 12. You have been predestinated to hear preaching on it that you might grow in this fruit. Sanctification is a process. Offering yourself up as a living sacrifice. It's something you've got to come back over and over and over again. Oh, how easy as Christians, isn't it? You offer yourself up. 
you feel the resignation of heart. But almost right away, that idol creeps in there. How often? It's, it's over and over. God says He's going to cleanse us from our idols. That's one of the promises. What is that? Ezekiel 36? But it's, it's not just a one-time deal. There's got to be this repeated offering and offering and offering. But folks, this is what we have become. This is what we are. Sanctification is the operation of the Spirit by which we are caused to be separated from all else, to belong completely and exclusively to God. Now, I think that you can all see that what I'm saying is true. It flows right from God's Word. But I need to be absolutely clear about something. You see, I'm aware of this. You guys here, free from sin. We are free from sin. Now you know, you can't argue that it's there. In fact, it's not only in 6.22, it's repeated through Romans 6 a number of times. And not only does it say we're free from sin, it says we're dead to sin in verse 11. Now you guys hear things like that. And I know what happens in the mind. Well, one thing you can say, man, I must be lost. Or you say, you know what, that's just, that's not even reality. So you just ignore it altogether. I mean, I, I realize when you hear that, you're processing it up here and you're saying, that sounds to me like free from sin means I don't sin anymore. You're saying, that just uh, that doesn't sit well with me. I'm not, I, something's got to be wrong. And you see, what some of you think what some of you conceive by that is that's saying the Christian life is easy. We're free from sin. It's just a flowery bed of ease. We just, you know, with, with ease and with just sipping the martini, we just kind of go through life and it's all just effortless. We drift through. You know, we don't avenge ourselves. Ah, that's just easy. We return good to those that persecute us. Man, that's, that, that, that didn't take any effort at all. And see, you can imagine that's what that means. And so you say, you know, what is this? This isn't in reality. Paul, come back to earth here. Listen, I just, I dreamt up a little picture, but maybe it, maybe it can help you. Imagine that you are wrapped up by a 20-foot-long python. Now listen, I've been where there was a boa constrictor before, and it was just a little one. Those things have some serious muscle. I mean, they can do some hurt on you. Have you ever seen those anacondas, those pythons that get really big, like the biggest snakes in the world? Folks, one of them wrap you around, you are a dead man. Remember those old... Uh, Jim, you know, out there in the water, Marlon Perkins up safely in the helicopter. I tell you, you don't want to be wrestling an anaconda in the swamp. I don't, I don't recommend it. But imagine this. Imagine you've got a 20-foot python that's wrapped around you. It's around your torso. It's got you. I mean, you, your arms are in there. Your legs are in there. It's just on you. It's coils literally wrapped around Every limb, torso, you are totally subdued. You can't bend. You can't move. Except the ways the python moves you. I mean, as it flexes and stuff, you're just helpless. You just go with it. Totally subdued. Totally defeated. Totally dominated. Totally controlled. You're mastered by the snake. It's squeezing harder. It's squeezing harder and harder and harder. It's killing you. But what can you do? The snake's stronger than you are. You are simply overwhelmed. You're overpowered. The strength of that snake is massive. It is so intense, so forceful, so secure that you are just helpless. But there's something else here. This python also has an enchantment about it. When it starts to coil on you 
and you're helplessly in its clutches, it also enchants you and puts you to sleep so that you no longer fear to be held by it. In fact, you come under its enchantment, under its bewitching, you come to where you actually enjoy to be wrapped by it. It's killing you. You're helpless in its grasp. And now, you don't even want to get away. You're not even afraid. You're totally brought under its power. Totally, it's killing you. You're totally enchanted. But here I come. I want to help you. I've got a syringe in my hand. And I come and I reach through the coils of that snake and I pop that syringe in your arm because it's got the antidote in it. I'm going to pump the serum into you that's going to save you from this python. The first thing it does is it breaks the enchantment. You immediately realize, I don't like being here. I want out. I want to be done with that python. That's the first thing. And you might liken that to repentance. The second thing the serum does is it makes you stronger than the snake. Now, it doesn't diminish the snake's strength or its ferociousness, but it makes you stronger. Now you are able to get out of the clutches of that snake. You hate it now. You can exercise your muscles. You can excel this thing. You can exceed it. You can break free from its squeeze. You're able to get free. Now, here's the thing. If you're standing and watching this person, let's imagine they're in a cage. They're in a cage. The guy's been wrapped. He breaks free from it. Now, as you look from the outside, you're saying, he's free. He's free from the python. But, here's the catch. He's in the same cage with it. And he can't get out of the cage. Let me tell you what the cage is. It's your body. It's the mortal flesh. Because you're still living in the same bodies that you had when you're lost. They're still fallen. And the python's still in there. And the thing's still, it's still mad. It's still ferocious. It's still strong. And if you take your eyes off it, it's on you. And pythons bite too. So often we don't think about it, but they've got razor sharp teeth. And they clutch their victim before they actually constrict around them. And this thing is in there, and if you don't go to sleep, even though you're stronger than it, it's still very powerful. And it's constantly after you. It's constantly trying to grab you. It's constantly trying to bite you. Constantly trying to get its... And, and if you're careless, if you turn your back, it's on you. Now, let me tell you something. What Romans 6, verse 12 says, is you are not to let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Now listen to me. Romans 12 says offer, not just yourselves. Paul's very specific. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And yet when you come back to Romans 6 and verse 12, it's right in the mortal body that the sin is seeking to reign. And Paul is saying, don't let it. And when you come over to Romans 8.13, it says, it's by the Spirit we put to death Not just any old deeds. Again, it comes back to the body. The deeds of the body. You see, what you have that makes you stronger than sin is the Spirit of God. God comes along and He changes your desires. He makes it so that you hunger and you thirst after righteousness. But sin is still in the cage with you. You're still in this body. You've still got the flesh there. And it... From there, this thing seeks to breed. It seeks to dominate. That python is constantly seeking to come back and reign. But you're free from it. You've been given strength to overcome it. You can resist it. You can run. You can walk. You can fly with wings as an eagle in this life. God has given you sufficient strength through that spirit. But I'll tell you this. In Galatians chapter 3, it says that we have that spirit by faith. And if you want to energize those fiery influences of that sin-killing spirit of God in you, it's by faith. Not by faith in the spirit. By faith in Jesus Christ. You want that increased energy constantly to come back and subdue sin and be a living sacrifice, you are going to have to set your eyes on Christ. You're going to have to come back to the cross again and again and again. 
degree by degree and glory by glory, you will be transformed into this image as you come back and behold the Lord. You will be transformed into His image. This is your freedom. You are not bound. You are a free man. You can run this path. You are not wretchedly defeated. Is it a battle? You better believe it's a battle. The, Christ Himself said that the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence. And violent men are the ones who take it. It's the violent who are entering. Now I'll tell you this. Heaven is eternal life. Now listen, compare this. Romans 6.22 says freedom from sin, slavery to God, fruit leading to sanctification, its end eternal life. That eternal life is heaven. Christ said it's through violence you get to that eternal life. What He's saying is the freedom from sin, the slavery to God, the bearing fruit, it's a violent activity. There is violence. You will sweat. You will cry. You will fight. You will battle. You will be grieved. Sometimes you will fall. It will be a wrestling. This python is cruel and it's constantly seeking to reign. But you've been so equipped by the Spirit of God, you can kill that thing. We must kill it. And I tell you, Christ also said that in order to kill it, sometimes you've got to cut off hands and you've got to gouge out eyes. And what He's saying is, sometimes when you strike that snake, it's going to feel like it's pulling part of you right out. That snake will grab onto you and as you tear it off, part of your own flesh comes off. Sometimes when you kill this sin, it will feel like you're pulling part of you out. I guarantee, as we go through Romans 12, there's nothing about this that speaks of anything but other than what kills pride. And I'll tell you, as you kill pride, it takes part of you out. It's like you're pulling out a plant that has roots that go right down into the very heart and flesh of your being. And when you pull it out, part of you is going to come out. And it hurts. But it's the path we've been called to walk. The path to eternal life is only reached by the Christian life. It's the Christian life that's described in Romans 6.22. Brethren, come with me. Fight. Determine. Pray. Let us keep our eyes on Christ. We need to really covenant together. We're going to come out the other end of Romans 12 better people than we went in. Living sacrifices. If ever there was a living sacrifice and a dying sacrifice, it's Christ Himself. He calls us brethren. His words ring true 2,000 years later. Follow me. You are dismissed.